0: Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 3 today. 1 Samuel chapter 3. We're doing a character study on uh, two individuals, a mother and a son. Uh, the mother's name is Hannah. Her son's name is Samuel. And Samuel is the name of the two books, First and Second Samuel, where his name. He did not live through both books, by the way, um, but it does carry his name. And um, they both have testimonies to set before us of uh, traits that I think we can learn from. And that's what we're doing. This is a character study on both of them. And they both lived in an era of time that I would call ungodly. And I've been trying to reinforce that week by week to show you that their days are really not so much different than ours as far as the culture is concerned. And they were living godly in an ungodly world. And so I hope that we gain some, some insight in these studies as well and uh, learn from them, some simple principles. We're going to hit Samuel today, and, and I've got uh, ten pages. We'll see. First uh, Samuel 3, just start in verse 15 with me and just cover about four verses, 15 through 18. So Samuel lay down until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, but Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And he said, what were the words that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me, of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now you're right in the middle of a context, I know. But there's something I want to show you here in this little section. Now, As we've been studying Hannah's life for several weeks in a row, um, we looked at a couple of words. Well, there's now four words up there that all start with the letter D. And I thought that would help us to remember some of these uh, traits about her that will help us as well. Uh, The fact that she prayed in her time of need showed her dependence upon the Lord. Dependence is a great word for us to learn as Christians in ungodly world and we're supposed to live godly dependent upon your Lord learn to pray is a very good thing uh we saw second that when she made a promise she kept it she was dedicated and uh we studied that as well she kept her vow that she had vowed to the Lord and that was a big one folks that was avow that I will have a son if you'll give him to me, and Lord, I'll just give him right back, and he will serve you the rest of his life. That that we talked about over the weeks, too. The third one, I used the word devotion. Devotion, as she went into prayer in chapter number two, the first two verses of that prayer in chapter two was focused on the character of God. And uh, where she learned all that is amazing. When you trace it through the culture and the times, this was the day of the judges, of all things. And for her to have such a grip on the uh, character of God and use theological terms that rarely do you find in Scripture prior to her life. I found that very interesting, but uh, she had to have known him in order to pray that way. And I call that a devotion, because you don't just casually come to know the Lord. That's intentional. You have God's Word in front of you. How much time do you spend in it learning who He is that you worship? She must have spent enough time to be able to show her devotion to the Lord. I think that's important, folks, in our day and age, too. We need to know our Lord if we're going to live for Him. Uh, The fourth word we gave to you was based again on the Lord's actions of the rest of that prayer in in, uh, verse 3 through 10 of chapter 2, that it showed the Lord's actions, and we used the word contrast an awful lot last week, comparing this person and that person and this work and that work and all that God does. And any time God's at work in your life, it's going to be different. And that was our key word. Uh, We are called to be different in our society, aren't we? different from the rest, and Hannah was different from the rest because she believed in a God who was different. And um, I like the fact that he operates contrary to culture. And he proved that in that episode too. And so some of those things we have talked about, and they're all on the website if you want to pick those up uh, and review any of them. But we're going to add one more, and we're going to move on to the life of Samuel today. And that's the verse we came to. When I just read verse 15 through 18, uh, I especially focused on verse 15. So Samuel lay down until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. And I'm going to work with that. Heavenly Father, help us today as we focus upon your word. What a privilege it is to have it, to learn from it. And most of all, to learn from you. To know you is a privilege An incredible, incredible privilege that you have granted to us. May we not squander our time, use it unwisely, but may we make the most of it because our days are evil. And if we make the most of it, Lord, I think we need to start with you. Know you and know you better. So help us as we study today in this little passage to gain useful parts here that we might live by. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We all know the word afraid, don't we? We can go through the whole list of phobias and everybody will have to raise their hand if they've got it. But I won't. Alright? People have fears of heights and fears of water and and fears of uh, snakes. Or they're willing to drive off the cliff if they run over a snake. That's okay. You know, people have all kinds of interesting fears in life. And I'm not going to do a psychological study on that. But you did see that word, didn't you? In the verse I just read to you. Samuel was afraid. It's one of the emotions and reactions that God has given to us. Many times we treat it like, oh, we got to get rid of that. We've got to get rid of those fears. Or we've got to get rid of those, those uh, afraid moments. But God built within us the ability to be afraid. He did it on purpose. It wasn't an accident. It was something he created. And, and we could study the word fear and know how it can dominate as well as an emotion or a reaction. It can be overdone. But it, it can dominate our thoughts. It can dominate our actions. Sometimes it will cause you to run. And sometimes it will cause you to freeze up. And you have some sort of a paralysis in that way. Uh, I believe it's something God has created in us. Just like tears. We're taught, don't cry. Don't cry. God made those tears. Use them. All right? He does collect them in a bottle, doesn't he? That's what scripture says. I don't know why. I don't know what the value is for that. I think we might stand there in front of a whole shelf full of them and say, Whoa, that person there really had a, you know, I don't know what we're going to do with tears. God has created in mankind anger. A lot of times he there, oh, that's not a good thing. Is it good at times? Absolutely. God has created that. It's just we have a way of misusing some of the gifts of our Lord. I don't know if you've noticed that, but we can do that. But what's also interesting, when fear was created that God installed within us, that very reaction might just save your life. Running in a situation where you need to run or stopping before you take the next step. God has created that within us. And I'm not going to try to explain all that scientifically or anything. I just know it's in Scripture. And I know it's often because how many times does the angel appear and tell them, Don't be afraid? And I don't know how you stop being afraid when you got an angel in front of you. But that's usually their first words. But here's where my concern gets a little bit with this because there's that paralyzing side of fear. Which some of us have experienced in situations. And if you start me up a ladder, you'll see where mine is. It doesn't take long before I get very far up and I freeze. And then you've got to figure out how to get me off that ladder because I'm not letting go. I was thinking the other day of the roar of a lion. And uh, they report that a lion's roar can be heard five miles away. That's pretty impressive. Uh, they say they primarily roar in the dark. I didn't really know that either. I was just, just looking it up. And and so I thought, if I'm outside in the dark and I hear a lion roar, I'm not calculating distance as much as I'm thinking, I'm in trouble. That thing could be very much right outside the tent. And uh, I heard, and this is one thing I heard years ago, somebody had said it in a Bible study, I think they said that... Uh, uh, the roar has a tendency of paralyzing the prey to make the lion's job of catching them easier. And I thought, really? So I googled it, of course. And they said, no, that's not true. But I don't know. It would work on me. <laughs> that's all I know. It would work on me. Um, it's interesting, though, how Peter brings that up. And maybe that verse has just gone through your mind as I was bringing it up. He says in First Peter 5, verse 8, Be of the sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I thought, okay, well, we get a picture, and we know that that could paralyze you in a hurry uh, in that aspect. The Hebrew word for fear is really down to a, a psychological reaction And I like this definition. It includes fear of something or someone. Fear of something or someone. And I was thinking that through a little bit further. And I said, you know, most of the times we use that negatively, but not the book of Proverbs. How often it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it talks about the things... Sometimes we replace it with the word respect. There are certain things we respect because they could do us much harm. I'm not one, when I see a a panel on the side of a factory building that has all these yellow signs all over it and don't touch this and electrical stuff. I'm not one to say, let's stick my hand in there and find out what happens because I respect the signs. The fear of the Lord. I think that good for us to respect who He is. He is God, is He not? And that's intimidating when you really think it through. That's a Hebrew concept. The the Greek term, which I'm only bringing up because the Old Testament was translated into Greek as well in the Septuagint. And when they used this word for Samuel, they used that word that you would recognize. It comes from the Greek. It's our English word, phobia. It's that word. And it means... To put it to flight. In other words, make it run. Panic is the word that goes with that word, phobia. It's a panic. Now, I just want to trace that a little bit, just give you a little understanding of that, but take you into the culture and the context where Samuel was and what he feared and what we could learn from it. All right? Now, it's a rather lengthy passage in chapter number 2. I'm going to start with verse 11, and I'm going to skip through some of the verses here, but uh, follow with me in 1 Samuel chapter 2, in verse number 11. We just set the the table here, reminding you that Elkanah was his father, and Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy, that's Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now, that was the day that Hannah brought Samuel to the tabernacle and dropped him off. Alright? She fulfilled her vow. She promised, Lord, I would leave him there. He could serve you the rest of his life. Now, he was very, very young. According to the text, it said he was brought to the tabernacle after he was weaned. So, it could be at least ...number as three years old. (laughs) That's incredible. How many of you ladies can handle that one? Drop off your three-year-old and walk away. He could have been as young as that. We're not given the timetables to know the exact judgment on these ages. But he was very, very young when he started to serve. That's where we start. Now, you would think that dropping your son off at the tabernacle... And being brought up by the priest would be a safe place. But as you've been with us for several weeks now, that was not a safe place, was it? We have found that in this context with Hannah and his mother, that spiritual element that was supposed to come from the leaders of that day was anything but godly. There was a lot of ungodliness in the place. For example, look to verse 12 through 16. The sons of Eli were worthless men. That's who Samuel was going to be brought up with. They were older than he. They were already married and such. But nevertheless, the, she, he was left to live with Eli. And no doubt, Hophni and Phinehas were there all the time too. They were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. That's sad commentary for a priest, isn't it? And the custom... Of the people, or the priest with the people, was this: when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would thrust it into the pan, the kettle, the cauldron, the pot, so that the fork would bring whatever the fork brought up. The priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also. They also burned the fat, and the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the man said to him, Well, they must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, that's what was expected of a sacrifice, then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. This was the custom of the men, to threaten, to threaten, to threaten, to threaten. And everybody heard it. It was common. In verse 17, Thus the sins of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. These are the men who circulated around Samuel for many of his early years. Formative years, we would add. These are the men. Alright, first glimpse you have, you have that, and then you read verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. First glimpse, he's living in a time of threats and intense sinfulness. You got that picture so far? Pretty tough environment. Second glimpse, jump down to verse 22. Eli was very old, and he had heard all that his sons were doing in all Israel, and how they even lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things, these evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, the report is not good, which I heard from the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For the Lord desired to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and with men. Isn't it great how after you see an ugly, ugly scene, suddenly it's like, but then there's Samuel. But then there's Samuel. And I kind of like that contrast here. you got the immorality now of the spiritual leaders. Their blatant sins. Their unrepented hearts. When they were told not to, they continued on. Death to the words of their father, defiant to the words of the Lord. How's Samuel's culture, look, culture looking right now? Pretty rugged, huh? Tough place to be. And verse 26 comes in and says, now Samuel was different. Now that's my paraphrase, but you see it in the wording. <laughs> now Samuel was different. He's growing in stature. He's growing in Favor both with the Lord and with men. You do not always see men as godly individuals. It's not always visible. It's not always something that uh, happens in a, a vast culture like ours with so many people. But I want to ask you, what do you aspire to? What's your desire would you love the phrase after your name to say, in in the favor of the Lord? Growing in favor with the Lord? Let's aspire to that. Let's be that way. You know what? You're going to be different in this world then. I guarantee it. If you're going to aspire to be in favor with the Lord, that's Samuel. And you can see the contrast building here. And he's living in a household that was under the anger of God. Let's add a third dynamic to this whole picture. In verse number 27, there was a man of God who came to Eli. Some prophet stopped by one day and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I not indeed reveal myself? To the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house. Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? To go up to my altar? To burn incense? To carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house all of your fathers all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Watch verse 29. Why do you kick at my sacrifice? And my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling... Why, I'm going to add this, why do you not honor me, but honor your sons above me? By making yourself fat with the choices of every offering of my people. You will notice, just in those words, the Lord was holding Eli accountable, wasn't he? He went straight to Eli for these things. Eli, you despised the sacrifices of God. Eli, you gave more attention to your sons than to me. Eli, you personally benefited from their sinful practices and stealing from the people. You are an example of what I don't like, what I'm angry with. Samuel's example was Eli. How many meals did Samuel sit down to eat that were taken by force down the street or around the corner at the tabernacle and the selfishness of Eli's family? And we read later on, Eli was quite fat with all that. Verse 30 to 36, it continues the Lord's judgments on Eli's family. In a summary of it, they won't live long, he said. They'll be replaced by others who will walk with the Lord. And Eli got an earful that day when that prophet came to town. There was no hope for a future for his family. If you read through the words, you say, oh, this is sad. Not one of them is going to live past the prime of life, the peak of life, and suddenly they're going to be cut off. Matter of fact, his son's wife was just about to have a baby. And even the judgment was going to affect that child. Because on the same day he is born, his father, his uncle, his grandfather, and his mother will die. That's pretty intense. They named him Ichabod. The glory has departed. You know, over the cartoons that we've seen in the past, When somebody's having a bad day, remember what's above their head? A little black cloud that follows them around and you say, Oh, I can tell just by the picture they're having a bad day. What do you see above Eli's head here? His family. This dark cloud over their head. They were under the wrath of God. Samuel lived there. Got the picture? Samuel lived there. (laughs) With all those vices and all the disobedience and all the greed and all the sin and all the disrespect and all the disregard for God's world. That word, that was Samuel's experience every single day. That's where he grew up. Now, let's move to the more immediate context. So you got that feel. Chapter 3, it says, now the boy, starting in verse 1. I had to look that up to see how old would he might be at this age. It's anywhere from the age of, of infancy to adolescence or teenagerish. So somewhere in that, I don't know how many years you're going to mark, but he's still quite young, obviously. It says he was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. That's like going to a whole county or half a state or maybe even more where there's nobody preaching God's word. (laughs) Places like that exist. Nothing coming from the Lord. That's a very sad commentary for the day that Samuel lived in. It was still the days of the judges. It was still the day when men did what was right in their own eyes. They had no regard for the Lord, no regard for his world. Uh, or his word, I keep saying world, his word. And we live in a day like that too. I don't have to prove that to you, do I? Just pick up your news tomorrow, and you'll see, it's still true. In verse number 2, chapter 3, it had happened at that time that Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim, and he could not see well. That the And the lamp of the Lord had not gone out yet, Now, some people take that spiritually. That's not what they mean. It's literally a lamp. (laughs) The light was still on. It was that time of the day. Um, And that's where the Ark of God was. And if I wanted to describe this scene to you, it would be something like this. The tabernacle, you've seen pictures perhaps, is is a large tent. And a a good portion of it, maybe two-thirds of that, is called the holy place. And in that, there was a table of showbread, and there was an altar of incense, and there was a lamp, a candlestick that they used, because there was no windows, go into a tent with about seven layers of of top on it, of of the material, and you're in the dark. (laughs) So they had a candlestick. It was very logical the Lord had it, but it had more purpose than that. But it did light the room up. Now that last third, back in behind a giant curtain, was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat, and that's the place where the high priest could go once a year. But into the main room, that could be in there every single day, and that's where they served the Lord every single day. They replaced the bread, they lit the incense altar, they lit the candlesticks and all those kind of things. That's where you're going to find Samuel right now. All right. Now Samuel was part of this process because I think from what I read, he's the candle lighter. <laughs> he opened up the window or the, the door in the morning. He would light the candles or put them out in the evening. And it said that he was sleeping in there. And so I think he's probably right up to the veil from what I can gather in this. The candles were not put out yet, but Eli couldn't tell anyway. He couldn't see the difference. And Samuel's there sleeping, and right behind him is the Holy of Holies. How would you like to sleep like that? So he's there sleeping, and I love this scene in verse four. Then the Lord called Samuel. Can you hear it? He's laying down. Maybe just turned out the lights. Laying down, Samuel. I, I think maybe uh, you know Charlton Heston could say it better, but. Here I am. He says. He wasn't talking to the Lord. He thought Eli called him. He got up. It says in verse number five, he ran over to Eli, says, Here I am. You called me. And Eli said, I did not call you. Go lay down. Right. I said it that way. But he went and he laid down. And then the Lord called again in verse six. Samuel. Samuel rose, went to Eli, said, Here I am. You did call me. He said, No, I didn't call you. Go lay down. Verse 7, Samuel did not know the Lord. Any surprise? Look at the people teaching him. That's kind of a sad commentary too. The word of the Lord has not yet been revealed to him. What an interesting phrase. He's living in the tabernacle. He did not know the Lord. And you may ask this question right now. You may say, well, then how is it that he can minister before the Lord and not know the Lord? How is it that Eli could do that? And how is it that Hathaway and Phineas could do that? And how many other places might there be on this planet right now where pastors are standing in pulpits and they don't even know the Lord? Samuel did not know the Lord yet. My guess is that Eli probably didn't leave the, fa- leave the family in devotions every day. My guess is that Eli did not teach his family the word of the Lord. It doesn't appear that way. Eli did not put Samuel in a Christian school. Well, of course, there weren't any. Hillsdale wasn't made yet. Eli did not even set an example to encourage knowledge of the Lord, from what I gather. Now, I might be suggesting some things beyond what's on the text, obviously, but I think he lived in a very ignorant culture. A context that was tough. He didn't know whose voice it was. He didn't even know. The Lord called Samuel again the third time in verse 8. And he arose and he went to Eli again. That's very natural. Here I am. You called me. And Eli then finally discerned. Oh, maybe the Lord's calling him. Hmm. So, he said to Samuel, Don't lie down and it shall be when he calls you. You shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went to lay down. And the Lord came and stood and called at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, watch these words, they're really cool. Verse 11 through 14. Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house, From beginning to end, for I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity, which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them. Therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. End of message. Yes, it is a reminder to Eli that the Lord meant business. But I want to ask something here, and I, I'm trying to put it together on a timeline. I don't know how much time has passed between that prophet coming up and this vision or this message that Eli or Samuel gets later. I don't know how much time passed between those two moments. But I do notice Eli never repented. His sons never repented. There was no change in their life or in their actions. And I'm going to guess that Eli never said anything. He probably didn't take that to his, his sons. I don't think he took it to anyone. Maybe he thought if he kept it a secret, no one would ever know that Eli had been strongly rebuked by a prophet. And maybe he's trying to preserve his own dignity or his reputation. It just strikes me as interesting that God at this moment says, Well, if he's not going to listen, I'm going to go talk to that little boy. And he went over and told it to Samuel too. And when you read that with me and followed it along, did it ever say, now go tell Eli what I just said? No. It didn't say that at all. It was something for Samuel to hear, for Samuel to ponder. strikes me interesting in that way. God never told Samuel... ...to go and tell Eli. He never said that. But you know what? It must have kept him awake during the night. Because there's little Samuel laying there... ...pondering these things. And back to the main point. Back to the main point... ...when you find in verse 15. In a pretty dismal context... ...in an ungodly world where Samuel was living... ...Samuel laid down until morning. He opened the doors of the house of the Lord... ...just like always... But he was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. God never told him to tell him. But I think Samuel expected Eli wanted a report. Because it happened very quickly, didn't it? Remember what fear is in the Hebrew terminology? It is a reaction to something or someone. What was Samuel afraid of? What was he afraid of? What was the Greek phobia word here that might want, encourage him to run? Get out of there. If you were living under that kind of a cloud, would you like to live there another day? Like he said, no, I'm going to move out. I'm not going to be in that same building with you. But here's my guesses, some of which may have merit. All right, just guesses to start with. The nature of his fear. Let's start with a good one. It was bad news. He was afraid to share it because he highly respected Eli, and he didn't want any bad news associated with him. Probably not, but that's always an option. He just didn't want him to hear it. I've known people like that, and you have too. Oh, this is bad news. I don't want to tell so-and-so. It would just ruin their day. I've seen it in terrible situations. A, a lady in the church who had cancer, and I knew it, and her family knew it, but she didn't. And they kept it from her, and she didn't know why she felt so terrible. And as a young pastor, I really wrestled with, what do I say? Do I go and tell her what her husband won't say? What her daughters won't say? I never did, until tell honestly... That, that brought a fear in my heart. I, I didn't want to do that. And the Lord took her home. But uh, anyway, I know sometimes it's hard to share bad news. And some people don't like to do it. Another one is likely that maybe Eli might share that news with his sons. Now, based on my guess, he didn't tell them the first time. So why would he tell them this time? But it does involve them too. And what is the nature of these sons we've learned about already? They intimidate people. And maybe he says, I don't want to go down that road. I've seen it. Or maybe it was likely that the message would go unheeded. After all, this is the second time it's been addressed because God kept saying, I told him. I told him. And he didn't do anything about it. And if Eli had lived in disregard of God's word the first time when God said it, how would he respond even now? Maybe he assumed it would even be harder. And maybe, maybe, Eli will be just as threatening as his sons. And you say, well, where would that happen? Look at verse 17. Look at these words and ask ask yourself, is this the way you talk to your children? (laughs) What is the word that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also. If you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. What do you call that? That's a threat. That's pretty intense. Would that help you to understand? Maybe he's a little afraid here. The whole culture is intimidating around him. It's not easy to live in a threatening society. That is going on in our world right now. If they don't like what you believe or think, guess what they're going to do. They're going to threaten you to stop. Do you believe that? Oh, it's everywhere. Any from Anything from a lion's roar to a, an evil threat of evil men, it's no wonder people fear. Here's what I want to bring this down to, because maybe not everybody in this room has an issue with fear. Maybe it's a bug, or maybe it's, you know, a heist, or maybe it's something or other. But in a society that hates Christians, it's hard to live. And maybe you're like what I was when I was a teenager. I wanted to be the guy they never noticed he was a believer. I wanted to hide in with the grain and the woodwork or anything, anything, so that they, I, was a, I was a secret disciple. I believe the Lord, and I, I would talk to the Lord about it. And I'd say, Lord, I wonder if, if you could understand that. I really don't want anyone to know I trust you. is that terrible? But you know that fear? Most of us do. It might be in, in, in a place that dominates around your home. It might be in your business. Might be in your school, some of you. I know Christian schools. Oh, that's not any place we ever worry about anything, right? Hmm. It could be friends. It could be a lot of things. But a threat that brings fear, that brings fear, it, it becomes so commonplace around us. Uh, something godly people have to reckon with. They do. How often does the Lord have to address that in His Word? The issue of fear. Especially of man. Go to the book of Psalms. Oh my, time's almost up and i got good psalms here. (laughs) The Lord is my light, he says, and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Who shall I dread? You can find Psalm 27, a beautiful psalm. Psalm 91. You can spend time in there. I'm just jumping through big chunks now. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I love the next couple of verses down in verse 4. He will cover you with His feathers. (laughs) Under His wings you will abide. And what is that all about? Because there's terror by night, and you don't need to be afraid of it. There's arrows that fly by day. You don't have to worry about that. You're safe. There's pestilence that stalks at no- darkness. Destruction is out there at noontime, but you're trusting your Lord. Beautiful Psalm 91, it is. Psalm 46, you could pull that one out. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And it goes on and explains again how terrible things can be, and yet I, can, I don't have to fear. I trust my Lord. I read these passages and I give them to you. You could read those too. It's so easy to fear what man can do to you. So easy. You, you might be struggling to be a visible Christian. That's just the reality of our world. A godly person in the workplace. A godly person in your home, maybe. A godly person just simply in your neighborhood. And this is a culture we live in that threatens you for it. And you know what? I don't think it's going to get better. Living godly in an ungodly age. It's not easy. It's not easy. And fear is something that comes quick. And there's all kinds of things. I wish I could share. I mean, lots of things here. But uh, where do I go? i got to give you the D word. Okay. Samuel spoke all these words to Eli. Didn't leave anything out, did he? I don't think it was so much the threat that made him do it. I think the Lord emboldened him to do it. But he did do it, didn't he? He spoke when he could have hidden it. I use the word determination here. Determination. He did it. Even in that kind of a culture, he spoke up. The rest of the chapter shows that the Lord honored him. I think that's pretty precious. He didn't give in to the threats from Eli or his sons. He didn't hide anything that needed to be said. He spoke it all. And guess whose name is in chapter 11 of Hebrews? Samuel. And maybe this might have been the instance that put it in there. Determination is a good word. You could add it to your list of of characteristics that stand out in an ungodly day. Dedication, dependence, devotion, difference, determination. To stand up by faith or to say what needs to be said or do what needs to be done in contrast to a group of people who want you to panic and stop. If the Lord be with us, we have no cause for fear. His eye is upon us, his arm is over us, his ear is open to our prayer, his grace is sufficient, his promise is unchangeable. John Newton said that years ago. Hasn't changed. One person said the only known antidote for fear is faith. That's a lot to think about. But this other one, I like this. Only he who can say, the Lord is the strength of my life, is the one who can say, of whom shall I be afraid? Then the last one that goes with this. Fear imprisons, faith liberates. Fear paralyzes, faith empowers. Fear disheartens, faith encourages. Fear sickens, faith heals. Fear makes useless, faith makes serviceable. I say, ooh, what's the difference between fear and and the culture and all these things and the man a little boy perhaps named samuel i think it was faith i think it came down to that and it was shown in his life but this is an early lesson in samuel's life i think something he's going to need for many many times in the future respond by faith just do it just say it sometimes we have those challenges in our own life with fear if it amounts to living godly in an ungodly surrounding, it's tough. Most of the time we say, where's the exit sign? Let me get out of here. I've got to leave. But I just set Samuel before you as one who was in the midst of that. And he spoke the truth, even while he was being threatened. He spoke the truth. Just a thought for you. you got other things you could read, but try Psalm 55 and then 56.
1: Oh, those are
0: good together. One focuses on fear and the other focuses on trust. But I like this last phrase and then i pray. Hudson Taylor said this years ago. He says, It's not greater faith that you need, but faith in a great God. Heavenly Father, You know who we are. You know where we are. You know what we experience from day to day. You know, Lord, that that Emotion and reaction we call fear can create more conflict in our souls, could cause us to run when we should stay put, could cause us to stay put when we ought to run. So many times, Lord, we let emotions or reactions control us more than we turn to you, trust you. There's something in this for all of us, I'm sure. Whether this is a immediate threat in somebody's life represented here today. Or whether it's something we've known in the past. Or something we might need to know. Or something we might need to teach to our children. For they're growing up in a world like this. And it's going to be tough. And if we could teach them determination to do what's right. Determination to trust our God. So that they know you. And know that they could rest in you, Lord. Wouldn't that be... A good ambition for our lives. But today, we have that option too. To stand or to go. But whatever it is, may it be the determination that this is what the Lord would have us do. And we do it. Even if the culture says don't. Even if the threats mount around us. Even if this world screams for us to stop. May we follow our Lord and trust Him. Trust Him each and every day. Lord, you know how to apply this to the hearts and the lives and the situations of those who hear it today. And I pray that you you hit the mark and help them to see who you are above all things. And they can trust you too. And I thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.